What's up, veggie pizza haters? Welcome to the Jesus Movies podcast where we search movies for lines, scenes, characters, and themes that trace truth in the gospel. I'm Kevin Carlock. I'm here with my fellow Pixar fanatic, Graham Hooten, and our hope is that you'll join us on the great journey of storytelling by asking thoughtful questions about why certain movies and moments resonate or don't resonate, and what that might say about the movie, about you, and perhaps about humanity as a whole. Today we're talking about Inside Out, and Graham, my one question for you is, how does joy relate to sadness? Well, I think going into this movie, it's easy to think of the two as being opposites and maybe uh, completely separate and uh, not intertwined at all, but I feel like this movie argues that joy and sadness are a lot closer than we think, and maybe sadness actually has a role to play in our ability to experience joy. So who's to say what's the causal agent of the other, but I am super stoked to be diving into Inside Out with you today. Yeah, I am too, because I think this might be my favorite Pixar movie of all time. Really? I, I think it's it's my favorite Pixar message or theme, but I don't know if it's the most entertaining. Like I think I find myself a little bit checking my watch metaphorically in the middle two-thirds of the movie when joy and sadness are going into the uh, depths of the human brain, if you will. I think of any of the Pixar movies, I really love the world building of this one. I feel like I could have spent a couple more hours just touring around Riley's brain. Um, We have Imagination Land, we have all these different islands, and it feels like we leave a lot unexplored. Um, And I know there's that little digital short Riley's first date seven minutes after, but I, I think we were talking before this about how the end credits of this movie are probably my favorite end credits that I've seen in a really long time when you see the emotions inside all these other little people's brains. And it just feels like we're scratching the surface on this really broad idea that could be uh, could be dived into, um, which unfortunately the movie doesn't get the chance to do. But hey, maybe a sequel. I don't know. Well, yeah, I think once you establish the concept of how the brain headquarters works, it's mm-hmm. like unlimited possibilities for humor and plot. Yeah, absolutely. And super applicable to people that are not just Riley. I love, again, the dad's emotions, the mom's emotions, the boy at the hockey arena. The boy at the hockey arena is my favorite. But how good is the dad watching the hockey game in his mind while at the dinner table? And then the mom's like trying to get its attention. It's like, signal the husband. (laughs) It's so good. And there's so much nuance in these scenes as well. I found it really interesting that Uh, In the dad's control center, anger is the alpha. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the mom's control center, sadness is the alpha. And if you look at Riley's, joy is the alpha. And so what is that saying about men and about women and about children in the specific ways in which we view the world around us? Talk to me about this. They originally, Pete Doctor and company, uh, had originally decided that fear would play opposite of joy. But then they changed it to sadness. What do you think was the reason for that and do you agree with the change hmm that's interesting i do feel like it makes more sense for sadness to play the opposite end of it and i think it does a really great job of going against the grain of the social narrative right now that sadness is inherently a bad thing um i think we're at a great point in society in terms of understanding mental health and depression and anxiety and addressing a lot of these core issues But at the same time, uh, it's easy to swing to the other end of being like, hey, all kinds of sadness are bad uh, and anything that doesn't make you feel good is actually unhealthy for you, which I think is is not true. And we're going to dive into what that means a little bit biblically as well. But I think they do a good job of pushing against the grain that sadness is always a bad thing. And sadness in many ways being one of the heroes of this film um, helps show that 
even the negatively perceived emotions play an essential role in our overall emotional, mental, social health. Yeah, like I almost even wonder if joy and sadness and the various emotions are neutral battlegrounds on which we can choose to be obedient or disobedient or turn these feelings and thoughts over to God or not turn them over to God. Like I I even want to question whether any sadness could be bad, uh, spiritually speaking, like with the right intent or whether any joy could be good with sort of the wrong intent. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And we see fear throughout the Bible being uh, a revered and important emotion. Um, fearing the Lord is a good thing, right? And even disgust, disgust towards the things that are totally not good and, and righteous anger is very much a concept in the Bible. And so, um, yeah, it's, again, there, emotions aren't as binary good or bad as society tends to paint them. Totally agree. So tell me this, is this a kid's movie or an adult movie? I mean, it's Pixar. So you probably uh, land on both ends of the spectrum. I think one of the things that Pixar does so well is throw in these little nuggets um, for the adults. And obviously they're movies that are probably marketed more towards kids, but you get the stuff of the helicopter pilot in the Bahamas or whatever thrown into the mom's brain and also the teacher's Fly brain. Fly with me, Kachika. <laughs> Kachika. Is that even a real world word? I have no idea. Just in case. Um, so there's a lot of these little nuances thrown in there. Um, but yeah, I, I think like any Pixar movie, it is a children's movie for adults. I mean, I don't know if there's any Pixar movie that doesn't fit into that category. Can you think of one? True, but I think this one leans more adult. Like, uh, I could see a seven-year-old just having no idea what they just watched. Mm, interesting. Well, I guess we got to go pull our local seven-year-olds and see what they think. I guess, like, a Toy Story, like, it's going to hit kids and adults in their respective spots with excellence. But, like, the premise of toys and going off to college feels more kid-oriented than the premise of there are characters in the emotional headquarters of your brain that are making decisions that are behind the decisions you make in your life. Yeah, sure. Maybe there's a more of a headiness to Inside Out than there are to some of the other ones. I think so. And I think I love that concept. But I, I do, like I said earlier, find myself a little bit less entertained than I do with maybe Finding Nemo or The Incredibles or Cars. You and I uh, chose this movie and we're, we're talking about possibly doing Soul instead. You want to explain why you would put Inside Out ahead of Soul, uh, the most recent Pixar film? Yeah, I think you and I both felt like in some ways Soul was just like a poor man's Inside Out. Hmm. If you're going to do like half the movie sort of in reality or whatever and half kind of like in the brain or spiritual realm or whatever, like it just seemed like Inside Out was the better version of that to me. Like I find myself wanting to spend way more time in the real world when I'm watching Soul. Like, I didn't find that abstract world. It's obviously visually stunning, like all things Pixar are. Mm -hmm. But I felt like the story was just all over the place. And even though I liked it overall, I love Inside Out. Like, I think the story hits home and has for years, and it's something that I will return to time and time again, whereas I don't think I feel that way about Soul. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think I would echo what you said. I didn't find the ending of Soul to be particularly satisfying. And I think the world building... I agree, especially in the real world in Seoul. And I mean, Pixar continues to one up itself visually and how beautiful that movie really is. Um, I do think that uh, it maybe fails to hit home for me uh, in the same way that, that Inside Out does. And maybe there's less of a clear conclusion, satisfying end. Um, but it's a great movie nonetheless. And, and Inside Out uh, is, is an all-time classic. So it's hard to hard to stack up against that one. Yeah, so where do you think this falls 
inside out i mean in your pixar rankings oof that's tough to say i think uh the incredibles will always be number one for me but that's just you know for me my childhood that was the one i watched over and over again i would probably put finding nemo uh right behind that which we got to do on a jesus movies podcast sometime soon um son who's gotten lost his father looking for him fantastic um and then i think maybe toy story one i i gotta rewatch ratatouille Fun fact, patron Andy Simmons' favorite movie of all time is Ratatouille. Wow. How about that? Fantastic film. Shall we hit some awards? Let's do it. All right, give me your Lazarus Award for the high-key gospel moment of Inside Out. So my Lazarus Award goes to Sadness Restoring the Memories in Riley's Headquarters. And this is also my pulpit pick, so hang with me as we dive in. So Joy and Sadness have this deep-seated affection for Riley, and they do absolutely everything within their power to restore her uh, and make her well. And after being sucked out of headquarters, Joy and Sadness embark on this wild journey to restore Riley's core memories so that she might once again remember who she is. And memory is a really powerful motif in this film, um, but also in a lot of different films. Uh, I think of the quote from The Lion King, Simba, remember who you are. Uh, It's the driving plot force in Memento, which is one of Christopher Nolan's first films. Uh, We did The Notebook earlier in Jesus in Movies, and memory, uh, or the lack thereof, is a powerful motif in that film. But memory is also a really important and powerful concept in the Bible. And so I've got a couple verses to back that up, and we're going to look at how God talks about memory and how Jesus specifically talks about memory. So here in John 14, 26, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Yes, Jesus here is talking about the Holy Spirit and how he's going to reveal new information to his disciples. But did you miss that second part where he says rather uh, than just continually only teaching them new things, he's also going to bring the disciples back to where they are. He's going to remind the disciples of what Jesus has already taught them. Again, this is not about adding new information, but remembering what has already been true. We've got Exodus 13, 13, and this is Moses talking to the Israelites after they've been taken out of Egypt by the Lord. Then Moses said to the people, commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. So in seeking to know who God is, uh, memory is deeply important. It reminds us of our and others' uh, experiences of a faithful God. In Exodus, we see the development of this uh, idea um, called an Ebenezer, and it's a rock that they place at a a specific location where God did something good. So the Ebenezer exists um, for us to remember what God has already done. Again, remembrance playing a key role in us knowing who God is. And finally, we've got 1 Corinthians 11.24, and this is Paul talking about the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, many, many different names for it. 
uh, and this is him describing what Jesus did uh, during the Last Supper. He said, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Again, so the Eucharist, the communion, it's all about remembrance of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Again, we're not adding any new information. We're just continually being taken back to the same gospel that Jesus is willing to lay down his life for us. And that fundamentally changes who we are and how we live in the world. And so through the Bible, it's clear that God has a specific desire of us to remember who he is, what he's done for us. And it's not about making new joyous memories or finding that next sermon or podcast or conversation that's going to propel us uh, forward into the world, but really in the simple reminder that we belong to the God of the universe and more than anything, he wants us. And so in this moment, when sadness restores the memories, uh, in Riley's headquarters, Riley begins to see with nuance who she is and how her memories form that identity. And for the first time, I'd argue, she experiences fullness of life. And we have this talked about a lot in John 10.10, which is a verse we've referenced continually throughout the podcast, when Jesus says, I came to bring life. Uh, I came that they may have life and have it to the full. And I think fullness of life isn't just fullness of joy, it's fullness of sadness as well. And we see here how uh, Riley's fullness of sadness ultimately leads to a point where she is able to be comforted by her parents and experience a moment of true, genuine joy. Might I argue a joy that is deeper than any other joy she has experienced before. And so we're reminded that we are reminded that true life is not found exclusively in being happy, but in experiencing the full realm of human emotion, the despair of our brokenness, the sadness of the cross, and the joy and full and complete joy of Jesus resurrecting from his defeat of death. And the memory of all that is what makes us who we are, uh, and it's what reminds us of who God is. And so that's why sadness restoring the memory, reminding us of that inherent truth, uh, that's why it wins my Lazarus Award and is my pulpit pick. Oh, man, I love that. That's really well explained. Great scripture. I think this idea of looking back on God's faithfulness in the past is is on nearly every page of the Bible, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, I am the Lord who delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians, from the oppression. I am the God who has, you know, enabled you to cross the Jordan and take Canaan and the promised land. I am the the God who gave you, you know, the land I promised to your forefathers. We see it over and over and over. And I think there's something true, you know, in that then and now, like, we just don't remember God's faithfulness in the past. We are overwhelmed by present struggles. And I'm just very quick to forget times when God has been there for me, even if not in like a prosperity way, like a delivering way, but in just like in a relational moment way. But I think to, to try and sit in the moments and remember, uh, you know, the temperature and the location and who I was with and what I was feeling and what I was wearing and what I ate before or after that, like to try to really viscerally kind of put myself in those places where I feel God was and was, was faithful relationally. And, uh, yeah, I get, I don't know. I'm kind of rambling here, but I I like what you said, because I think a lot of times there is like you hinted at this desire of the new podcast, the new Bible reading plan, the new community group, the new church, the new commitment Mm. that maybe we don't keep. And God has asked us to remember who he is and how he's provided in our lives and that he's already, you know, one that we can go to the Lord's table for communion because he has defeated sin and death. And it's ultimately that, that we're trying to remember. And that's why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves and have it preached to us over and over and over again. Cause we just, we don't remember it and we don't really understand it. 
Yeah, I would have totally agree. Um, and two more things. I think for me, memory has really illuminated uh, the genealogy in the Bible. And so I've been reading through Luke recently, and it traces Jesus's genealogy all the way back to Adam. And we get to see how Jesus's lineage uh, follows in a line of people who have been uh like blessed by the Lord and how crazy things have happened in their life and how God has delivered them from their specific circumstances. Uh, and two, I want to plug a song that I really love. It's called Take Me Back by Maverick City Music. Um, and it's a little bit of a longer song, but I, I really like Maverick City. And it talks about like, hey, Lord, like take me back to the moment that you saved me and remind me of my first love, remind me of uh, what it was like to fall in love with you for the first time. Um, and I just, I think that's a great song and, uh, brings me to tears, uh, very often. So yeah, that's my, uh, that's my Lazarus award and I'll uh, throw it over to you for years. Yeah. And a couple quick things before we do go there, like I'll just share one thing that I feel like I've been struggling with is having a desire to read the Bible in the morning lately. It's just been this weird phase that's kind of come in the last few weeks and, a prayer that I've been praying is sort of that God would like renew that desire within me, that he would remind me of the first love that I had. And that was a sermon that was preached to me last week in my church. We were going through Matthew 11, talking about, uh, come to me, all you who are weary and labored, and I will give you rest. How like a lot of times we just don't know, or, or we think that the invitation of the gospel doesn't apply to us. How like it feels like it's for non-believers, like that should come mm-hmm. to Jesus and get rest. Or it feels just like too simplistic, like we already know that. But that the invitation is to come back to Jesus again and again and again and to remember that first love. Because a lot of times being a Christian and living out what Jesus calls us to do, as well as to be a part of a church and like this whole church thing, it just kind of feels like a waste of time or boring, I guess, sometimes. But to sort of uh, really take this invitation seriously of trying to sort of re-fall in love with maybe what drew us in in the first place. Because a lot of times I think there can be that spark of sort of adrenaline at the beginning when we experience Mm -hmm. freedom in Christ for the first time. But then we can sort of like, it gets so ritualized and we sort of go through the humdrum of the day-to-day. And um, I don't know, we can sort of lose that love. Just as in marriage, I guess, I would imagine it's like this. Like you have a lot of these big romantic feelings at the beginning and then maybe 15 years in, maybe even one year in it's sort of like well i guess we're in this together now and maybe some of that magic and emotion is kind of gone so how do we sort of recapture that first love in psalm 51 you know david after he's committed his adultery with bathsheba his big repentant famous prayer in psalm 51 is that like god would renew his heart for the lord and the steadfast spirit within him Hmm. yeah so and then i guess zooming uh, or transitioning from that kind of spiritual practice of like remembering our first love and asking God to renew that love for him within us that we once maybe had. I think Pixar is like all about memories. Like a lot of their movies are sort of about the importance of memories and how they inform our present and hopefully our future. Especially we saw that in Onward, which just came out a year ago, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. And again, the idea of ritual or liturgy within the church uh, is all about memory, right? And independent of memory, like ritual and liturgy, I feel like become pretty bland or useless. Um, and if we're not like remembering what those practices are centered on, which is um, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, well, sorry for the rants there. Those were some very scattered and elongated thoughts. So apologies. And it's only going to get worse as this is my pulpit pick as well. My Lazarus Award goes to Riley Gets Real. 
specifically crying with her parents here in the big moment at the end. And so this is kind of the um, other side of the coin of Graham's. So Graham, help me with this to clarify. Your Lazarus Ward specifically was how sadness brings back those memories. Like when she puts the ball yes. in the thing and it kind of goes up and then it appears on the big screen. And it's yep. like Riley seeing it in that moment of crying kind of. Yep. So it's like you've given the Lazarus Award for the in-brain version of what I'm giving is the uh, in real life in San Francisco simultaneously happening uh, Riley and her parents. And so first I'll play the clip and then we'll talk about it. All right. Thank you. We will. Her teacher hasn't even seen Riley all day. What? What was she wearing last? Do you even remember what? Riley. Oh, we were worried sick. Where have you been? It's so late. I know you don't want me to, but I miss home. I miss Minnesota. You need me to be happy, but I want my old friends and my hockey team. I want to go home. Please don't be mad. Oh, sweetie. We're not mad. You know what? I miss Minnesota, too. I miss the woods where we took hikes. And the backyard where you used to play. Spring Lake, where you learned to skate. Come here. So I think the idea here is that the gospel gives us the freedom to actually let our guard down. Um, Riley is finally able to sort of stop pretending and just let herself be honest about her feelings. Um, and so I wonder, like, do we have examples of this kind of vulnerability in the Bible? Is this a biblical practice or not? And so I'm just picked five instances here. So first, let's go to King David. This is 1 Samuel 30. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. That's pretty strong language there. David, the mighty warrior, wept until he had no more strength to weep. Let's move on to Elijah, 1 Kings 19, verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. So here we see the prophet Elijah um, literally asking God to kill him. Like, let it be over. My sorrow has overtaken me. I have, I've done too much wrong. Numbers 11, we get the similar thing with Moses, verse 14. I am not able to carry all this people, referring to Israel, alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, O Lord, kill me at once, if I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my righteousness. So the same exact sentiment, Lord, my wrong doings have, have overwhelmed me. Like, please just kill me. Jonah chapter four, verse three. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah asking for death as well. And then 
This is maybe the capstone, Jesus himself, Matthew 26, verses 36 to 40. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So we see this kind of deep emotional conflict, uh, but ultimately Jesus obeys his father's will. Um, and so I guess I'm saying those are just five or four examples, one from the New Testament, I guess, to show that we do see this kind of biblical vulnerability that Riley shows here. Yeah. I think sadness obviously is a really important part of the human experience. And we see that specifically with Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. And, and there's even two instances of him in the gospels weeping, you know, one when uh, he hears of Lazarus's death and the second one as he's approaching Jerusalem um, as he weeps over the city and sees the brokenness of the people. So yeah, I think sadness crying, very biblical, even if we don't like to admit it. Yeah. And so there's a little bit of spoilers for false prophet. Cause I want to talk about like, why are we able to face the sadness? Like how are we able to get to this point of vulnerability? But also the climax is a show don't tell, which is fundamentally great storytelling. It's appropriate for the visual medium that film is, but it makes it hard for us to play the clip and for you to really see and understand yeah. what's going on. Cause particularly if you're watching the shot where we get a close up on Riley's face as she's kind of pressed into her father's chest, um, and it's like sadness has let joy hit the button on the, uh, controls as well. Do you remember that moment where they mm -hmm. sort of like press it at the same time yeah. and Riley kind of has this moment of like, she's still crying, but she kind of like smiles. Like there's kind of a hint of relief. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's like for me, the capstone of this whole moment. Mm. Yeah, because there's now a nuanced memory, right? Where sadness and joy can coexist in the same space. And I think often we think of emotions as being as in incredibly binary, right? They're either happy or sad moments. There are fearful or uh, funny moments. And maybe there's a little bit more nuance than we're willing to give ourselves credit for. And I think that this kind of reveals that, the, again, the fullness of life that we referenced earlier. It makes me think, like, what were the emotions that Jesus felt on the cross? Because obviously sadness, right, and, and probably fear but probably joy and probably anger for at the people for uh, leading to this decision where he like chose to give himself up. And so um, I'm not willing to say that Jesus was like only sad on the cross. I think there probably was uh, a, a hodgepodge of emotions there. And I think it, honestly, for any of the moments that we're, we're living in. Yeah. And I guess this is okay. This is going to be a little bit meta, but like when I think about that concept of like feeling the most and like the complexity of emotion and like how Jesus invites us in a full life, not necessarily only more joy, but more sorrow too. Like, I feel like the COVID era has been like less of everything for me, hmm. like, like lower highs and less lows, just more static. Whereas like at Davidson, it just felt like extreme highs but also extreme lows but i was yeah. like feeling the most yeah but i guess like in a weird way when i reflect and like turn those thoughts over to god in vulnerability and prayer like it becomes like a new low it's like a new sadness core memory that's going into my thing and mm. so then it like undoes itself like it can't be true the second that i acknowledge it mm. does that make sense i think a little bit you're actually it's a good segue into my mary magdalene award okay let's go ready there. to go there so my Mary Magdalene Award goes to the freezing over of the control panel. How do we stop it? I got it. Make her feel scared. That'll make her change her mind. Brilliant. I know it's brilliant. Do it. Ah, 
working. What? Why isn't it working? Let me try. Hey, you broke it. No, I didn't. Let, Let me do it. it. Get out of here. Guys, we can't make Riley feel anything. I think if there's anything that this scene is trying to communicate is that the absence of joy is not sadness, but it's apathy. And so the verses I referenced here are actually from Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. And this is a prophecy through the prophet Zephaniah to Judah um, about their coming destruction. And it says, quote, At the time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will do no good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. And so I think this is a biblical parallel because God's greatest fear maybe for us or maybe greatest antithetical anti-desire for us, I don't really know how to phrase that, uh, is that we would feel nothing towards him. Uh, and I think the Lord works within our emotions to reform them uh, and reveal himself more deeply to us. So are you past that decision node of I'm either going to be for, against, or apathetic towards Jesus or that kind of spectrum? Or is that something that you feel like you're still sort of like battling on? I think it's something that I'm still battling. And I think if any believer is being honest like that is something that they're still battling. Kev, I'm throwing you the Mary Magdalene Award. So I'm giving my Mary Magdalene Award to Sadness Comforts Bing Bong. Riley can't be done with me. Hey, it's gonna be okay. We can fix this. We just need to get back to headquarters. Which way to the train station? I had a whole trip planned for us. Hey, who's ticklish, huh? Here comes the tickle monster. Hey, bing bong, look at this. Oh, here's a fun game. You point to the train station and we all go there. Won't that be fun? Come on, let's go to the train station. I'm sorry they took your rocket. They took something that you loved. It's gone forever. Sadness, don't make him feel worse. Sorry. It's all I had left of Riley. I bet you and Riley had great adventures. Oh. They were wonderful. Once we flew back in time, we had breakfast twice that day. Sadness! It sounds amazing. I bet Riley liked it. Oh, she did. We were best friends. <laughs> yeah, it's sad. <laughs> I'm okay now. Come on, the train station is this way. How did you do that? Well, I don't know. I he was sad, so I listened to what. Hey, there's the train. So this is kind of interesting. Uh, when I took my first job after graduating and went through a bunch of like HR training, this was the example that they used of like how they wanted us to relate in the workspace, which I thought was awesome. I was like, oh my gosh, I love this scene. I love Inside Out. And I think that it's really biblical. And I wouldn't be surprised if uh, ministries and maybe churches use it in a similar capacity to sort of show a very like entry level um, example of how to relate to someone who is 
sad or maybe even depressed, it leads me to this question of like, how ought we interact with sad people? Because I think a lot of times I just feel inept in that regard. Like I feel inequipped to interact with really sad people, maybe grieving people. But I think that this scene has to be like a step in the right direction. It, it just feels really biblical to me. This idea of sadness sort of just offering her presence without maybe like a prescriptive solution. Because um, I think about when when I'm sad about things, it's not so much that I want someone to sort of say, well, you could have just done X or have you tried doing Y or have you talked to Z? Um, and maybe more so just having someone kind of say, you know, like that really sucks. Mm -hmm. Or yeah, that must have been really hard. And just kind of to leave it there. Uh, I think in a lot of ways as humans, that just feels like incomplete. Like uh, we're problem solvers or maybe we've can, been conditioned to be problem solvers. And so when we're presented with a problem, maybe that problem is a person. Like It's like, okay, how can we solve this? How can we fix it? Um, and I think that comes from a good place a lot of times, right? Like you're trying to help somebody, but maybe the best way to help is not to do that. And I guess um, I turn to Psalm 73 for my verse here, verse 21 to 23. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. This idea that like when someone is grieved, God is just kind of continually with them, holding their hand. Um, I guess it's a little different because God actually is the problem solver. But um, even in God's divine providence, you know, he doesn't always solve things in the way that we might think he would or hope that he would, right? Sometimes it is just kind of like, hey, I have your hand here and I'm with you, but this isn't going to change. Um, this person is dead or this job is lost or this house is burned. Or maybe it's just like they brought you the wrong sandwich and they're not willing to bring you the right one. And maybe that makes you sad because it's your favorite sandwich. Like I don't think scale even matters here as much as maybe we think it does. Like the principle of sort of like how do we interact with sad people? I don't know. I find this scene moving and I think that it must be truthful even though I don't know much about this stuff. Yeah, and it reminds me of, I think, a verse we referenced earlier, Jesus, um, one of the two instances of Jesus crying in the Bible is uh, following the death of Lazarus. And I had said earlier that it's when he learns of the death of Lazarus. It's actually when he shows up and, see all of the hurt, and sees all of the hurting people that he begins to weep. And so I think this is a great picture of what it looks like to empathize with people. It's like weep with people, cry with those who are hurting, um, weep with people who are broken and experiencing the consequences of sin in the world. Again, um, I think if we try to take the approach, and I think this is often the approach that I take of saying like, hey, let's talk it through. Let's figure out how to fix this problem more so than, hey, let's like sit and empathize with people because in the moment, that's what they need right now. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like we have a lot to learn from this specific scene, especially in what it looks like to care for others in, in relationships and friendships and in ministry. So I would, I would affirm what she shared there. And again, as is the case with most things on this podcast, it's the start of a conversation and not the be all end all. We've solved it. We now know how to, how did we solved it? We did it, Kev. <laughs> how do we solve uh, sadness? Yeah. We, now we know how to uh, approach people who are depressed or just sad because they got a 93 on their test and they wanted a hundred. Mm. Like there's valid, I, I think that that's totally legit because as Sven says to Kristoff in my beloved Frozen 2, you feel what you feel and those feelings are real. Come on, Kristoff, let down your guard. Mm. Take me to your false prophet award for a non-biblical argument that Inside Out offers. So my false prophet award goes to the idea that 
The islands of personality are what make Riley Riley. And each core memory powers a different aspect of Riley's personality. Like Hockey Island. Goofball Island is my personal favorite. Come back here, you little monkey. <laughs> yep, Goofball is the best. But Friendship Island is pretty good, too. Oh, I love Honesty Island. And that's the truth. And of course, Family Island is amazing. The point is, the islands of personality are what make Riley, Riley. So I think that Inside Out seems to argue that our interests make us who we are, and I'm just going to call this island theory. But what if our identity was not something to be developed, but something to be discovered? Our specific identity is God's beloved. And so the passage I pulled here is Colossians 1.15 through 23, which may be a little bit long, but outside of the four gospel accounts, I think this specific passage maybe does as good of a job of describing the gospel as any passage in the Bible. It tells us, one, who Jesus is, two, who we were, and three, who we are now because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So I'm going to read through it real quick and maybe be taking some mental notes on what you hear here. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether all things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. For you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body, through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you've heard that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and which I, Paul, have become a servant of. And so by virtue of these verses, we are not our interests. Our identity is not our interests. Our personalities is our personalities are not even our identities. Our emotions are not even our identity. We are broken images of God, but we are made holy. And this identity trumps anything we could try to create for ourselves because it's unshakable, inalienable, and eternally true. Interesting. Yeah. So do you think that Riley conceives of herself as the summation of her personality islands, or is it only that the emotions in the headquarters think of her that way? I think the emotions in the headquarters think of her specifically in that way. I don't think we see Riley externally uh, communicate that that's how she views herself, but... Um, I think it's pretty clear that those identities, whether they're conscious or subconscious, have a huge role to play in her emotional health. Well, I guess I'm just thinking that like, there's kind of two ways of answering like, who are you? Because like, if someone asks me like, who are you? In any kind of public setting, I'm going to say like, well, you know, I'm X years old, I have Y job and right. uh, my hobbies are Z or whatever. And that's kind of like the personality island approach. Um, but yeah, deep down, I'm still believing like, well, who I really am is a beloved, redeemed child of God who uh, 
is loved by the father abiding mm-hmm. in the son you know drawn by the spirit these things and like but that doesn't mean i'm going to necessarily answer the surface level question that way i guess mm-hmm. um sure maybe there's room for interpretation there and i would agree with you i think in a public setting i might answer that a little bit differently but i think for me i'm thinking about at, at its core face to face with god who am i like this is who i am this is me this is me so to speak <laughs> good call back <laughs> I'm giving my false prophet award to sadness without a solution. Joy, you gotta fix this. Get up there. Sadness, it's up to you. Me? Sadness? Sadness? I can't, Joy. Yes, you can. Riley needs you. So I think that uh, Inside Out does a great job, maybe better than any movie I can think of, of sort of dignifying and affirming the role of sadness. But it only feels like part of the story to me because when I think about sadness in my own life the only reason I'm willing to face it kind of head-on is if I know that there's more to the story but if I don't have hope in a trustworthy solution then how can I have the strength to face sadness or better yet why should I be sad if like it's just gonna kind of end there and I know that there's sort of like like we get my Mary Magdalene award sadness comforting bing bong like all it takes is a a few seconds of him sort of crying candy, and then he's like, okay, I feel better now. Come on, let's go. The train is this way, right? Like, he kind of has that catharsis that leads to a renewed course of action. Right. But I feel like on a bigger stage, like, as the stakes get bigger, like, I wonder how much that really works. Like, I just wonder if reality is actually too depressing without an existential hope for something better. And so I guess I'm just trying to ask, like, but why sadness? Like, why is it important? Like, I'm not sure that we really get the foundation beneath it. And so for this, I'm going to Lamentations 3. This is probably the greatest book in the Bible for sadness. Um, And so I'm just going to read a few verses, kind of skipping around in chapter 3. I am the man who has seen affliction. Under the rod of his wrath, he has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. Verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. He can face this kind of sadness and and be vulnerable and lament because he knows that in the Lord, he has hope that there is more to the story. But when we don't have that, uh, it's sort of like, why be sad? I guess like if I didn't really have that existential hope, I don't know. This is what's so attractive about the gospel is you're finally free to let yourself be who you really are because who you really are is good enough in Christ. You can actually be honest with yourself and your feelings because your trust for deliverance is outside of you. Mm, Like it doesn't depend on you and you can face that sadness knowing there's an external solution that's been provided. I love that. And, And to think that in many ways that is so like experiencing sadness is so freeing. Like we don't think of freedom as experiencing hard things but man how freeing is it to be able to experience sadness and realize that that's not the end narrative Um, how freeing is it to be able to experience genuine fear and pain with the belief that hope is coming you know and and i think the depth of our sadness actually makes joy that much greater the depth of understanding the power of our sin makes the gospel so much greater right because we understand how much greater god is um 
that he would come in and die for us in that context. So, yeah, I think a lot to be affirmed there. Totally. Yeah. So, and again, the movie, like, I think there probably are some great arguments that, like, you facing sadness is still worthwhile, even if you don't have the existential hope. Like, there is the power to kind of turn course of action, but... Yeah, in a little, it doesn't, I don't think Inside Out ties this like crazy neat bow on something that doesn't deserve it, but like there's a little bit of that going on, I guess. I can't decide how much. Anyways, take me to your Jesus Award. My Jesus Award goes to Bing Bong. No, 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 I do. (gasps) Bing Bong, Riley's imaginary friend. You really do know me? Well, of course, Riley loves playing with you. You two are best friends. And so Bing Bong is, again, Riley's former imaginary friend that's been cast off. They used to have all these adventures together. They played in a band together. Uh, you know, they ran around the house and played tag. tag. Um, they had all these great times together. And yet, uh, as time goes on, Bing Bong is forgotten. He is cast off. The person that uh, Riley used to have some of her greatest times with uh, falls away and is no longer a central part uh, of her life. And then we get this moment where Joy and Bing Bong are down together in the pit, and the only way to get out is to ride Bing Bong's uh, sled, I think, the wagon, the whatever his mobile is that, that flies on, on song power. Um, and after realizing that with Bing Bong's weight on, there's no way it's going to get up over the edge, uh, Bing Bong throws himself off the wagon so that Joy can uh, reach the, the top of the cliff. Take her to the moon for me, okay? Bing Bong, I mean, what a Jesus figure here. Uh, he is laying down his life for his friends. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. If Bing Bong's not doing that, then I don't know who is. Um, but also to, to hearken back to the previous adventures that Bing Bong and Riley used to go on, um, I've got the quote from Revelations 2, 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. And I know in this podcast we referenced uh, our first love, our first love being God and how we have pushed him away in search of other things. And while Riley has forgotten Bing Bong, and maybe this isn't even her own fault, um, he still loves her and he's willing to sacrifice his life that she might be restored. So I think that's why Bing Bong wins my Jesus Award. Yeah, I like it. So he does give his life, you know, for the for the greater yeah. cause. Uh, despite the fact that I find him annoying, I see the merit in your selection. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> All right, Kev, what's your Jesus award? I'm giving mine to sadness. It was the day the Prairie Dogs lost the big playoff game. Riley missed the winning shot. She felt awful. She wanted to quit. What is the biblical function of sadness? Feels like the million dollar question of this movie and for this podcast relative to the movie that I don't feel equipped to answer. So I've basically picked three things 
Um, but I feel very, it feels trite to me. So if you object to this, I am kind of agreeing with you. <laughs> but here are the three that I, because I even came across things in scripture that didn't kind of fit neatly into this three. Um, but anyways, number one, sadness points us to who we really are. For this, I want to talk about 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11. And when I say talk about, I mean read. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so I think a lot of times we hear verse 7 kind of selected here and put on the back of a t-shirt. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And I agree, that's an exclamatory promise from God there that we can cast our anxiety, our feelings on him and know that he cares for us. But it's interesting that Paul is pairing it with these other verses about uh, resisting the devil, uh, standing firm in your faith and your hope for Jesus, and and knowing that you're not alone, that uh, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Um, So there's kind of this idea that, like, this is what it means to be human. Like, Satan's going to be after you. Other people are going to be feeling it too, but you're going to feel like you're feeling it alone. Uh, but you know, humble yourselves, be under the hand of God or know that you're under the hand of God, uh, and know that there's like a solution that like Jesus is going to restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you one day. But until then it's a little bit of a, a wrestling match. And like, so I guess sadness is just kind of indicative of who we are. It's kind of a litmus test that we are in fact human. And so surprisingly, or maybe this isn't surprising, but Jesus being 100% human, sadness can point us to who Jesus really is too. We already read Jesus being sorrowful to the point of death the night before his betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane, but I wanted to talk about just in his day-to-day life. This is Matthew 14, and this is Jesus upon hearing the news that his friend John the Baptist is dead. This is how he reacts, starting in verse 10. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And the disciples came and took the body and buried it, and then they went and told Jesus. So that was all context. They're telling Jesus about John the Baptist's death. Verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. So we see Jesus withdrawing in solitude upon hearing this bad news. And I just, you have to think, he's sad, right? He's sorrow is is looming in his loins from this mm-hmm. bad news of his friend's death. And so we can see that Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully human. And he experiences the whole spectrum of human emotion. And lastly, sadness points to our hope in a better future. Revelation 21, 1 through 8 paints a stunning picture of this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4, big one here. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water, of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And so, we see that sadness, while dignified and having its place, something that Jesus experiences, something that can bring us to repentance... As is talked about in 2 Corinthians, that was the one that didn't fit in neatly here, or fit in neatly, but uh, sadness has this place for moving us to a place of repentance, often when it's associated with our own sin. And we kind of saw that in my Lazarus War with the prophets, kind of feeling this overwhelming sense of ineptitude and failure uh, that they asked for death. Uh, anyways, that was a tangent. What we see here in Revelations 21, 1-7 is that there is hope for a better future, one without sadness. Verse 4, Then neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. These are going to be former things one day. And that's kind of crazy to think about, especially if we're going to define full life from John 10.10, like you talked about, as like more joy and more sorrow. So how do we kind of understand, like if that really is full life, isn't the kingdom supposed to be a full life? So is there no sorrow there? I guess that'll be something we learn someday. But our hope is that there is no morning there is no death in this future in this new jerusalem and i want to close out with a great hymn that i think captures how jesus marries uh love and sorrow and this is isaac watts's when i survey the wondrous cross listen to these lyrics this is verses three it's four verses and this is verses three and four see from his head his hands his feet sorrow and love flow mingled down did ever such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And so I read that final verse to kind of show you the conclusion and the finished hope, but it's really verse three that gets at this idea of joy and sadness and inside out, like, see from his hands, his heads, his feet, sorrow and love flowing mingled down when Jesus is at the cross. There's love and there's sorrow there. Did ever such love and sorrow meet? Has love and sorrow ever been so divinely, mysteriously woven together than by Jesus on the cross? So yeah, I'm giving my Jesus award to sadness because sadness certainly has a biblical role to play. And I think that sadness as the character in the film meets people where they are, treats them with dignity and respect and love, and is ultimately the key to Riley's redemption. I think, yeah, a lot of really good biblical examples there. And isn't it sadness, really, of like our separation from God that is maybe a great motivator in God's willingness to send Jesus? Like, does God send Jesus to earth to pay for the atonement of sins if he is not saddened by our own separation? And yes, like there's probably a deeper, like like a joyous motivation or like a compassionate motivation to bring us into relationship with Him. But I think God, God's sadness of separation is a real agent in the Bible. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I mean, I I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll <laughs> maybe. find out someday. It's probably a lot more abstract than we're making it. That's it for the awards, and now onto the Q and A. But first, an announcement: Need new running shoes? Want to support a local business? Omega Sports sells running shoes and a variety of athletic apparel and equipment, both in stores and online, at omegasports.com. For online orders of at least ninety dollars, they offer free shipping everywhere. And use the redemption code JIM for Jesus and Movies. Doing so gives you ten percent off your purchase and gives another ten percent towards our production costs. Again, that's omegasports.com code JIM for a discount and to support us. Now onto our Q&A and guest submissions. 
Uh, you can email us at jesusinmovies at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can just say hi, or you can send in a question, or you can let us know um, if you'd like to be on the podcast, or maybe even recommend a movie that you're interested in. That seems to be the most popular email we get is, hey, uh, have you thought about doing this? Um, but anyways, no big emails this week, Graham. Just a couple a couple notes about movies people would like us to do. So I want to ask you, where have you seen the gospel and something you've read or watched or listened to? So I'm a huge fan of Steph Curry. Obviously, the both of us went to Davidson, so we are big fans of his incredible story. He takes Davidson to the Elite Eight in 2008 and goes on to become this two-time MVP, three-time world champion for the Golden State Warriors. Um, and I was listening to listening to a couple podcasts talking about Steph's resurgence this year because he's had, had such an incredible year for the Warriors. He's an MVP candidate, candidate once again. And it was talking about... Um, that this season reveals how much he had to sacrifice when Kevin Durant came to the Warriors in 2016, how Steph was the unanimous reigning MVP and he recruited a player that arguably will go down as a greater player in history. And what kind of superstar player would be willing to sacrifice his own points, his own statistics, his own MVP candidacy in order to bring in somebody who's going to be more of an alpha than him. Um, And really I think it is like Jesus in Steph um, Steph has talked a lot about being a believer. He was born and raised in Charlotte and gave his life to the Lord in late middle school um, and is is active in his faith and uh, is pretty vocal about sharing it in, in the way in which he interacts with um, other people. And so um, I genuinely think it is the Jesus in Steph that allows him to realize that, hey, you know what, like being on a team sport, it's not all about my ego. It's not all about, about what I can achieve and the legacy that I can build, but rather I'm willing to sacrifice my own ego that um, somebody else might score more on my team and that we actually might have a greater team chance at victory. Um, And especially in a league such as the NBA, that's very much driven by ego, by jumping from team to team to try to secure the best situation so you can go down as the greatest in history. Steph has demonstrated a great loyalty to Golden State, but also a willingness to sacrifice even when a lot of the pundits would argue he shouldn't have been willing to sacrifice. And so um, I think this week I've seen Jesus and Steph Curry. And Steph, if you ever want to come on this podcast, we would love to have you. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool, man. Uh, I agree with your point. I think that I, I can't help but wonder if that's maybe why some people prefer college sports to pro. It just feels like uh, a little bit more about the team and maybe pro sports can feel a little bit more individualistic. Yeah, for sure. I personally love pro sports, but I, I do see the distinction there. And that's cool because I think, like you said, Steph's decision there was pretty countercultural, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You don't see that move being made a lot. Can you think of another example? I mean, I think Tim Duncan probably would be the other teammate that would fit into that category of a willingness to sacrifice. But I mean, in team sport, I mean, any athlete that gets to that high of a level usually does so because they have a relentless pursuit of some goal and probably a huge ego that comes with it. I mean, I watched the last dance with Michael Jordan and I just, I can't see myself. I can't see Michael Jordan doing something like that. You know, what about you? What have you seen recently? So I'm spending a lot of time writing and studying story structure. I feel like I've seen how God sort of, um, God has like designed uh, the way that our hearts like appreciate and, and re- resonate with stories. And I guess um, to kind of make something abstract, maybe a little bit more concrete, I'll give a couple examples. Um, 
So I think uh, at least the good writing theory that I subscribe to talks about how plot and character are kind of intertwined. Like there's kind of this debate, like what's more important, plot or character, plot or character. But I feel like the people who really know what they're doing tend to sort of say, well, they're really in an organic story. They're sort of the natural manifestation of each other. Like if you define characters the correct way, like a plot will spring up naturally based on their differences and you sort of follow the conflict and kind of vice versa. Like they should be working in tandem. Um, and I think we see that with Jesus. Like his his fundamental character is set up in a way where like he has to die on the cross to save humanity. Like it's the only natural end of that story and he gives himself freely to do it. Like it just makes sense in the Jesus story that it kind of follows the initial conditions that are set up by the story. If like the gospel were like fiction, like it would be good fiction, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, another example, characters should have like needs and wants. We talked mm-hmm. about this, like maybe uh, joy in this movie, like wants to make Riley happy, but she needs to learn the importance of sadness. And that's very simplistic, but like that's kind of how uh, character arcs are constructed mm-hmm. in some ways. And like in a tragic arc, maybe they're confronted with the truth, but they deny it and continue to spiral deeper into the lie that they're believing at the start. But I guess I feel like we see this with uh, characters that come to Jesus in the gospel accounts. Like they have a want, but they have a need. Uh, maybe it's they want to be healed of their blindness, but they need to know that Jesus is the son of God. Or maybe it's that they want to, to think that they're following Jesus, but they need to hear that they're actually not following Jesus or that they need to go do something. Um, uh, I don't know. I guess it's just cool because there's like breadcrumbs always when I'm studying structure where it's like, but why is this why we like stories? Why are these kind of character contradictions interesting to us? Why are these settings referred to in the in the ways and the patterns over history of storytelling that they are? And it's just, it's there's almost always some kind of cool parallel there. So sadly, we've got to stop the discussion there. I will say we might have some exciting guests coming up in the future. Uh, so sorry for another guestless week back to back. Maybe we shouldn't have set a precedent of having a guest every week. <laughs> I don't know. We'll figure it out. But uh Exciting things to come, and if you want to be on the podcast, please don't hesitate. Let us know. Email us at jesusandmovies at gmail.com. But before we close, here's a quick shout-out to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this discussion possible. Courtney, Kristen, Craig, Heather, and Jackson Carlock, Jacob Derizio, Ben Dunbar, Graham Janet, and Ken Hooten, Daniel Lee, Bess McLawhorn, Mike, John Pavone, Logan Russell, Andy Simmons, Kim Streamer, Clay Young. Thank you all so much for your support. Our monthly production schedule is posted on our Instagram at Jesus and Movies. March schedule coming soon. Give us a follow and a like so you can see what movies are up next. If you'd like to support the Jesus and Movies podcast, Patreon is our preferred way of support. For $1 a month, you can become a patron and pick the movies, get shouted out on the podcast, and featured on the Instagram. So if you'd like to join the group, please do so at patreon.com slash Jesus and Movies or on the free Patreon app. Anyone can always write us at jesusandmovies at gmail.com. And lastly, if you're listening on Apple, please give us a review and let us know what you think. Uh, That helps us to learn more about what's working and what isn't, as well as to reach new people. Thank you so much for joining us on the Jesus Movies podcast, and we hope you found some goodness, truth, and beauty. Know that Jesus took on human sadness himself to give us the freedom to be honest with our sadness and to hope in a kingdom without it. And we'll see you next week.